As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Hello, welcome. Welcome back to the Athletic Football Tactics podcast and our 22-23 season starts here. Join us over the next year or so as we tackle another season of football tactics, tactical trends and data contemplation. I'm Ali Maxwell. Uh, I'm delighted to welcome back the Athletic's long-standing and loyal Minister for Football Tactics, <laughs> Michael Cox, and the Minister for Data Analysis, Mark Kerry. Hello, gents. How are we? Hi, Ali. Hi, Ali. <laughs> Good to be back. I'm here to chief whip you into shape this season. I think that works. I think that works. We are back because we have major tournament football to talk about. The Women's European Championships here in England are underway. On today's episode, we're going to break down England 1, Austria 0 from Wednesday night, the tournament opener. Uh, and then... We will pick Michael and Mark's brains about some of England's contenders for the title. Uh, it's going to be an amazing tournament over the next few weeks. Join us as we discuss it, but make sure that you're subscribed and locked on the Athletic site as well. For the best and most in-depth coverage of the tournament, you will find that on the Athletic website and app. And we'll be adding our own audio angle over the next few weeks. We'll start... With the first game, the opening game, England versus Austria. What an atmosphere in the stands at Old Trafford. And on the pitch, Michael Cox, the phrase job done springs to mind for England. Yeah, I thought it was classic kind of first game of a tournament. I don't think you really see many sparkling performances from the host nation in the uh, in the first game. Maybe Italy at the Euros last year, a bit of an anomaly in that respect. Um, but yeah, England started nervily. Maybe tired towards the end, but I think by and large they were pretty good. If you look at the expected goals, I think Austria had half a goal's worth of chances. England up at just over two, I think it was. Um, and for me, that that sounds about right on the balance of play. I think England created a lot of chances, probably could have scored more than they did. Um, but yeah, getting off to a winning start, I think, is the main thing. Great to get an early XG mention at the start of the season, just to settle us all down. Mark Kerry, flipping the roles here, why don't you talk me through um, just initial tactical thoughts, England's shape, uh, the general way that they look to approach this game, any any key patterns of play? Was this typical of England under Serena Wiegmann? 
I think so. Yeah, I mean, XG was all I had to to offer, so I've got much else uh, in the way of that. But um, yeah, I think so. I mean, they started with a you know and played with a four two three one throughout, which we expected um, from the the way that they've set up in in pre tournament games. I thought I thought they built up well from from the back. I think they used Lucy Bronze really well. She was really comfortable in in building in those early phases and then allowing England to to progress forward. And then in the attacking phase, I think they used their width really well. So using Lauren Hemp and, and Beth Mead really nicely. Um, I did look into the numbers as well on, on where they attacked in that attacking half. So if you split the, the attacking half into into thirds, they they employed the, the left third of the pitch really well. So 43% of the attacking touches um, came down that left third throughout the, throughout the game um, compared with 33 on the right-hand side as well. And 24% down the middle as well, which I thought was quite interesting in terms of the the use of Frank Kirby. I thought that she what she did do, she did well, but I didn't think that she maybe got into the game quite as much because England were using the the width so well. Um, but yeah, I mean, she set up the the only goal as well, so she did have an important sort of role to play, but um, didn't feel like she got as as involved as maybe would have liked. Yeah, I mean, I watched this game on television, and in the commentary they were saying that Kirby needed to get involved more even after she assisted the opener which I thought was funny um, I kind of think she played a role quite well I mean England's wingers were playing really wide and, and dragging the Austrian fullbacks out I thought Kirby was making some really good runs into the channels almost like that's going to be quite a big part of England's approach I think to a certain extent Stanway was doing the same on the other side and I also like that England can shift between 4-2-3-1 and 4-3-3 very easily I mean this was 4-2-3-1 without the ball with the ball, sometimes Kirby was dropping to kind of inside left positions. And I just think there's a good understanding in that front three, particularly with the three behind Ellen White, who I'd say uh, was the one of the attackers who I, I'm not sure particularly convinced um, last night. But yeah, I, I was I was relatively pleased with how Kirby played, considering she hasn't played a competitive game of football since January, off the top of my head. Mm. I thought she was quite positive. Do you think there's something in the number 10 role in modern football in general and and maybe too much focus on what they do on the ball because historically the 10 was the creator, was the most skilled player in the team and uh, and and in theory anyway, the one that made the attack tick. But Michael, certainly over the last, what, five years or so, we've seen the number 10 overall at elite level football fall out of the game quite significantly. And, and now I wonder whether we're still judging them on what they used to do and maybe a bit less so on the sort of things that you mentioned, movement off the ball. You know, that stuff's harder to measure, of course. But when you were talking about Kirby and her movement into space, particularly when the ball was out wide and trying to drag defenders away, I did think to myself, maybe we're focusing too much on what the 10 does on the ball, those the, the, the sort of old school measurements of what we expected from them. Mason Mount sprung to mind, actually, when I was thinking about this. It's a really interesting question. I think as a general rule in the last five or so years at international level, there's probably been more space for number 10 in the women's game than the men's game because there are differences between the between the uh, sports, if you like. The women's game is slower. There is more space between the lines and that in theory means you can get a number 10 in there constantly dominating the game. And I think international level as well, it's quite interesting because... Number 10, it's it's a position, but it's probably more of a role than a position. It's, it's saying you're going to base your team around this player. And I just think there's more examples at international level of where you get one player who is individually so much better than everyone else that it's worth doing that. I mean, Denmark and Peniel Hard is a good example. She's, I mean, best player by miles at club level. She's obviously playing in a, a Chelsea side with comparable players. 
where the side is as much or more so based around Sam Kerr or Frank Kirby than it is around her. So, yeah, it's something I'm, I want to keep an eye on, actually, at the Euros. I think it could be a good topic. I mean, Alexia Puteas probably falls into that category as well, obviously not going to be there. But it'd be interesting to see how many teams do just base themselves around one player. And I think in the men's game as well, you, you do tend to just get Brazil being based around Neymar or, I mean, Salah pretty much plays as a number 10 for Egypt. You do get more examples like this because I think the teams are just more imbalanced. But in general, as Mark said, the the, the England build-up eventually was focused out wide and, and trying to hit those attacking wide players. Is, is that something that we can expect as standard um, from England in this tournament, a, a focus on the damage that those wide players can cause? Yeah, I mean, I think that's where England have got real strength. I mean, Chloe Kelly can come off the bench as well. I actually think she's arguably most suited to playing in this system, which is a very kind of Dutch system in terms of how they use the wide players. That They start very wide, but they're expected to go in behind and pop up at the back post as well, which which Kelly does really well. Um, so yeah, I, I think that was a good a good template of what we'll we'll see going forward. Like I say, the, the question mark for me would be whether Ellen White keeps a place for the next game. Um, they've got three strikers, her, England and Russo, who I think are completely different. Um, and I think tactically we will see maybe maybe all three of them starting at, at points in this tournament. I think on a note of the, the wide players as well, one thing I didn't mention was just how good the, the diagonal balls were from, from Millie Brighton and Leah Williamson at, at centre-back when they didn't need to necessarily play and build up sort of slowly into the, the attacking third. I thought that especially Millie Bright was just playing those balls, especially in the first half as well, to uh, Lauren Hemp in behind um, and just found her brilliantly. And that was, you know, able to just fast track towards essentially the, the penalty over Lauren Hemp was coming in behind really nicely. Um, and it was a clear tactic, I thought, throughout um, that they were just trying to find them in more advanced areas rather than necessarily a slower build-up through through the lines and through each player. So really great work from both centre-backs, really. And in the end, the decisive goal came from a brilliant pass from Frank Kirby, a great run, uh, understanding of a, of a sort of messy offside trap from the Austrians, a great run from Mead, a fabulous first touch and, and finish as well. And a nice sort of, it was kind of framed, wasn't it, as a bit of a redemption story for Beth Mead, having been left out of the Olympics uh, and now scoring England's only goal in a win at the home Euros to get them off and running. Uh, Michael, uh, quite a lot of discussion as there always is about team selection in major tournaments and particularly the first game and, and where Wiegmann w- would turn. Uh, were there any big surprises for you on this front? I didn't think White would start. I thought Alessia Russo would play up front and I think she could she, she could return for the next game. And the other one would be at the back where uh, Alex Greenwood probably a little bit unfortunate to miss out. But I thought that was fair enough. I mean, Williamson was really, really good with her passing from centre-back in the friendly against uh, Switzerland. Um, which meant she played at centre-back. And then at left-back in a game like this, I kind of understand why Daly and her recovery pace was was needed on the left. So, you know, a bit harsh on Greenwood. She'd be a a very close second choice for two different positions. But I don't think Mm. it's that much of a snub. I think she'll be needed in in subsequent games, especially against more dangerous right-wingers. I think she could play uh, left-back throughout the knockout stage, but we'll have to wait and see. 
I, I do get the feeling, and I did so reading previews on the Athletic site as well. That you know, when we talked, when we were predicting team selections, etc., there was always a willingness to point out it doesn't matter too much. This is a very strong squad of twenty-three, and everyone will get their chance. And, and it seems like rotation is expected in the future games. Uh, the, the first goal in a tournament match very often changes the the tactical complexion of a game Michael was that the case here England scoring relatively early did anything significant change after that maybe not tactically but I just thought England settled down after that I thought they started quite nervily particularly you know lost the ball a couple of times just in front of the defence but I thought the period between you know 20 minutes and 70 80 minutes England were were much the stronger side They, they started a little bit nervously they tired a little bit but yeah, I thought the goal settled the nerves and they probably should have scored a couple more um, since Berger made a, a couple of good saves. Ellen White maybe could have done a little bit better with a couple of headed chances. Um, so yeah, I don't think it changed anything tactically, but it showed that England were, were in control. And Wiegmann going for a, a triple sub on the hour, which I liked the look of a lot. A, a very clear plan there, Mark. Injecting, well, more speed and skill uh, when the opposition may have been flagging. Yeah, I think that was sort of needed, that that substitution. Maybe not necessarily three at once, but I think there was definitely a substitution needed at that stage. I think they did inject energy. I don't know whether they maybe profited from that energy quite as much. I think they were slightly wasteful at times. I think Chloe Kelly had a chance, which I think they had an overload of maybe three on two or close to that, um, where they could have maybe profited from it and, and scored from it. But um yeah, I think especially when the game became stretched, as as Michael said, I think England tired towards those final 15, maybe 10 minutes. Um, and I think that, yeah, maybe England could have then gone to maybe 3 and up and used that, the fact that the game had stretched in those final minutes. But I think, as you said, it makes a, it's a wider point of just how good England's depth is, you know, off the bench. They brought on those three players and and it could have brought on Beth England, even Nikita Paris as well from an attacking perspective. They just got so many different options for so many different opponents and I think it kind of feeds back to the the defensive side of things that we just spoke about before and it's I thought it was the same with with last summer with the the men's team is that it's very much I think horses for courses as well I think you know Gareth Southgate changed between a back four and a a back five and I think that you know uh, England might do the same here with changing between you know Alex Greenwood whether Rachel Daly comes out etc it will very much be as you say um, you know players coming in and out depending on the opposition. Different drinks for different needs uh, Michael who was your player of the match I thought probably Millie Bright actually um, which is funny because I didn't think Austria put England under that much pressure but she just won everything in the air I did see some chat about you know why doesn't uh, Weigman try Williamson and Greenwood which would be a very technical centre-back combination but I think we saw why you do need a kind of real old school centre-back there and as Mark says I thought Bright's passing as always was very good those diagonal balls are usually really effective but yeah, I thought Millie Bright was excellent. I thought Georgia Stanway as well made some great tackles in front of the defence. Um, has a reputation for being a little bit wild with the tackling, but I thought it was pretty solid last night. Um, I saw someone describe her in the athletic comment section as a walking foul, which yeah. I enjoyed. Yeah, I do get that. <laughs> and but she, she's and on, too, your point, yeah. on your point about Bright, I also saw quite a lot of people questioning England's defence as maybe being a bit of a weak uh, spot and, and Bright being a part of that but certainly defending their box when they needed to looked very comfortable and aerially certainly from attacking set pieces as well I noted a lot of first contact from the England centre-backs which you know didn't bear fruit in that game but I dare say may do in, in future games. 
Yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, Williamson is a brilliant player, like fantastic to watch and technically so good. But when she plays at centre-back against a real top striker, I do sometimes wonder whether she just has the the natural physical defensive qualities. And Bright, I think, has come on a lot since um, the World Cup three years ago when I think at times she looked a little bit of a liability, but had a really, really good season for Chelsea. Probably the first time she's completely stepped out of Mag and shadows and, and being Chelsea's best centre-back. So, yeah, I thought that was a positive area. Uh, Mark, a- anyone else to offer for player of the match? I mean, I definitely thought thought Bright as well, especially, you know, as Michael said, with, with her passing. Also, just the fact that she was such a calming presence. When England were getting a little bit shaky in those final 10 minutes, she was, I thought, a really calming presence, really organised still, despite, you know, a few tired legs. Um, I thought Lucy Bronze played played really well as I say really helpful in the build-up side of things and she played especially in the first half played some great balls that were literally on the six yard box and beautifully curved um you know into really dangerous areas so I thought she played really well so um maybe a shout for Lucy Bronze as well but I do agree that Millie Bright just her her confidence her composure and a calming influence all the sort of intangibles as well as the actual passing and defending as well I thought was fantastic what about Austria's approach, Michael? England were heavily favoured to win this game and they only won it 1-0. Uh, did you feel like Austria's approach was the right one? Did you expect more? I thought they were all right. I mean, they, they came into the tournament with the reputation as being difficult to break down. I think they broadly showed that. I um, can't remember who it was. One of their players afterwards basically did an interview saying, you know, we regarded this as a bit of a free hit because England are hosts. And I kind of get that. Yeah, I think I'll be just disappointed they didn't create one clear-cut chance because they did get the ball into decent positions. Um, but whether it's through Bright or through sometimes not particularly good crossing, I thought they crossed from slightly hopeful positions at times rather than getting to the byline. Um, but yeah, they were all right. I thought I thought they were fairly compact, fairly deep blocking in the way that they played and tried to counter-attack. As Michael said, I don't think, I think their first shot on target was maybe about 77 minutes, maybe later. So they didn't necessarily threaten too much on goal. But I think it feeds into what we were saying about England of maybe Frank Kirby having to, to drift wide and maybe not get the ball in those sort of central locations because the way that Austria set up. So you have to obviously adapt to that. The way that they were fairly compact between their defence and midfield, the ball kind of had to go wide and it had to be you know more threatening in those wide positions. So I think that was probably testament to the way that Austria played and set up in, in more compact areas so that the central area of the pitch actually wasn't necessarily available. So that, you know, the two feed into each other, the way that Austria set up and the way that England respond. Last one on this game, uh, high expectations, it's fair to say, for, for England at a major tournament. And after this match, despite kicking off the tournament with a win, uh, we heard words like unconvincing, words like under par. Uh, Michael, is it fair to expect more from this England side in this game? Uh, more goals, more free-flowing football? Or, or is this a similar discussion that we've had many times before about tournament football in the men's game that we should stop trying to prioritise or expect certain things in a tournament format, which does not mirror club football, for example. Well, when when people say under par or below par, they're using that as like a golf analogy, right? <laughs> yes. And you know what my next point's going to be? <laughs> I do. I've seen it coming and I hate it. I don't yeah. know what I'm going to say in response. No. Um, yeah, they were excellent, England. You're right. Um no, I mean, you've just eviscerated a phrase that's been around for decades in football discourse and now simply cannot be used again. It doesn't make any any sense. Being under par 
It's only a good thing in golf. Yeah, I, I, I annoyingly <laughs> I say this every time it's been mentioned. So you clearly haven't <laughs> used the phrase in the last, what, two and a half years early. Well, what you've noticed is I said, we've heard words like unconvincing, <laughs> yeah. like under par. Yeah. I didn't say that. I wasn't sitting on my sofa muttering them to myself. That, that is very clever. Um, yeah, maybe England could have shown a bit more, but it's just about getting through. It's just about getting through the first game. I think maybe if, if people are looking to see a big performance, you know, maybe the Northern Ireland game, the final group game is the one where England can open up a bit. But the next one against Norway is obviously the, the toughest game of the group. You would expect that one will decide who finishes top. Um, so, yeah, I, I thought England were basically fine. I, I think when you look at the, the XG, it shows it was a fairly convincing victory. Yeah, completely agree. Again, I was going to insert my XG there, but um, I feel like... Yeah, you the, keep the your XG to yourself, swapped. Mark. I know, maybe next episode. But I, I do completely agree. And I think that the the narrative is, is often the, the overriding feeling when you look at the game. And England did create a lot of chances. They had plenty of shots. As Michael said, they should have um, probably converted more of them based on the XG. And also, you could just see it throughout the game. I think Ellen White had a good two good opportunities with her head which especially in the first half which she maybe should have done better with there was that Chloe Kelly um, chance which which I mentioned which in the second half I think the at the end of the first half um, Lauren Hemp had a good opportunity and I think Frank Kirby just put a little bit too much on the pass and just couldn't get it out of her feet in time as well so point being England got a lot of chances they got into the final third and got into goal scoring areas really really well so that should be the overriding I think the sort of the conclusion and the narrative from the game, if they weren't even creating those chances against Austria, then you'd sort of start to to question how they'd go on throughout the tournament. But the fact that they created a great deal and realistically didn't let too much, you know, in the way of the, the opportunities in their own goal, that should be the overarching feeling, especially in the first game. I think weighing it all up, I'm willing to say they were around par England. They <laughs> They did what was needed to do without excelling, but certainly without botching it. Um, maybe they'll be under par, hopefully, in their performance against Norway. We're really changing. We're, we're changing football semantics here. And, and I think that is one of our roles, albeit one normally taken on by our friend and colleague Adam Hurry on the Football Clichés podcast. I mean, m- maybe it was a re- maybe a referencing Lily Parr, who I believe is the only female England player in the FA's Hall of Fame. You could have used that as an excuse, but you didn't. Wow. <laughs> You're playing a different sport. England kicked off with three points. They're among the favourites to lift the trophy on the 31st of July. And in part two, we'll take a look at their main contenders. That's next. This episode is supported by season three of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. 
Right, let's provide a mini preview of sorts, a pleasingly simple format for this competition, Michael, very much uh, in particularly compared to the format of the uh, Men's European Championships, which has certainly been the subject of some ire on this podcast in in previous years. Four groups of four, two going through, a quarterfinal awaits. Uh, We're going to take a look at the main contenders, not every side, but those that, um, well, Michael, from our discussions, it feels like you're not expecting a ton of shocks, not a ton of of dark horses going deep in the tournament. And in general, you can say that there are sort of two big teams, for want of a better phrase, in each group, two big contenders. Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, obviously, the tournament was seeded. The groups were seeded. I think there's probably eight or nine contenders for the tournament because I think there's one group where the third team could progress. Um, So, yeah, I think the group stage might be a little bit predictable, but I'm hoping the knockout stages will be really fantastic. Well, in Group A, we've discussed England, we've touched on Austria. The other two teams in this group, Norway and Northern Ireland, they're taking each other on on Thursday night. How do you perceive these two sides? Well, Northern Ireland, with all due respect, I think have, have done really well to get to the tournament. When you just look at the quality of player, I mean, the majority of them are either based in, in Northern Ireland or the ones that are in England are, are generally not even in the top flight. Um, so you have to say that start as big underdogs, I think, in the group. Norway, I think, are an interesting side. Obviously, Ada Hegerberg being back is a, a huge boost. You could say that she's the best striker in the tournament, probably alongside Miedemar. Uh, Caroline Graham Hansen has been fantastic for Barcelona last couple of years. I think she's going to play a bit more centrally rather than on the right. But look at them defensively. And I mean, they, they just they haven't really got that many defenders, to be honest. I think they're going to end up playing um, with Milda and uh, Thoris Dottir at centre-back. Neither of whom I really think of as centre-backs, which in turn means they're going to play wingers at full-back. And I know to me, it just feels like they're going to concede quite a lot of goals. They'll be exciting and I think they'll get through the group. Um, and I have heard a couple of people say they're dark horses, but yeah, defensively, I'd be pretty worried about them. Can they be dark horses when they've won this tournament how many times? That's true, Who's but they're say? what? Are they seventh favourites? Is that is that dark horse territory? I don't know. But I take I your point. Historically, they've been, they've been, they've been good. But you could, call, you could call Uruguay dark horses in the men's, tour, in men's World Cup, I think, couldn't you? I think seventh favourite in a 16-team tournament, I think that is in the Dark Horses sweet spot. Fair I think right. you're looking at the sort of sixth to tenth favourites uh, realm there. Um, I mean, England are playing them on the 11th. Uh, a tactical preview of sorts from you, Michael. How how differently to England one Austria nil might that game look? Yeah, I mean, Norway, I think, can impose themselves a little bit more on the game. They've got a good central midfield uh, duo, Frieda Manum at Arsenal, and Engine as, as well in there is an excellent player. Guru Reiton um, at times has been fantastic for Chelsea last couple of seasons. Um, so yeah, I think they've. I mean, they are an exciting team. I think they'll be good to watch. I think the games will be open. Um, but yeah, defensively, I just think they'll concede goals. Um, and I think it'll be really interesting who England play up front because yeah, I, I think they should get chances. Well, that was going to be my next question. If if this is a, a horses for courses approach against Wiegmann, uh, and if you've mentioned the fact that Norway may be playing defenders who are not natural in those positions, uh, who do you think would suit that best between Alan White, uh, Russo, and Beth England? I'd almost, I mean, stylistically, I'd almost say Beth England, just kind of attacking into the channels. But I feel like um, I feel like Russo might actually get the nod. I think her link play in that final friendly was really good, and she scored a good header as well. 
Um, I think if she comes in and plays well, she could just nail down that spot. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm going to this game. I'm really looking forward to it, actually. Quite a, a fun quirk as well that Heger Reese is, is Norway's manager and was also in charge of um, Great Britain during the Olympics last year. So she will know many of these players. And uh, you mentioned earlier Beth Mead being left out of that squad. So might be a couple with a point to prove, shall we say. Mm, yes, love that. Love that narrative. Um, let's move on to Group B, which I have seen described as a group of death. Are you having that? I, I don't... I mean, I'm quite strict with my group of death definitions. I think you've got to have four real contenders, and I'm not sure that's the case here. So you're happy for a tournament just not to have a group of death? I think so, yeah. I think it's it's reserved for special occasions for me. But this is the strongest group. I understand that. Spain and Germany, two contenders. Denmark, I mean, obviously got to the final last time around. I'd be surprised if they did it again, but they're a good side. And Finland, actually, I mean, they... I think they could be difficult to break down. I'm not sure they're going to come out all guns blazing and take the game to opponents. But yeah, this is the most interesting group, I think. On on Spain, I mean, I remember when we did a podcast on the FIFA Pro Men and Women's World Eleven, and we spoke to Alex Ibaceta on this podcast a few months back about the, frankly, the debacle of the women's side. Um, and I really enjoyed listening to her speak about so many of these excellent Spanish players that we'll see here in this side. I mean, pre-tournament favourites, but, Mark, also the the highest profile pre-tournament injury issue. Yeah, Alexia Puteas has got an, an ACL injury, and I think it was, was it the day before or two days before the, the tournament kicked off, which is just the, the worst timing, I think. And I think for as good as Spain are as, as a whole team, as a whole nation, I think she is still the the best player in the in the whole side so to to not have her is is huge I, i'm genuinely gutted that we won't be able to to see her play i was fortunate enough to see her play for for barca femini against arsenal in the champions league last season um and i just watched her for two minutes of just seeing how much just she scans fantastically she's always one step ahead her little cute balls around the corner and you know her passing range is is just incredible so to not be able to have her in the tournament just from a neutral perspective is is a real disappointment but for spain i think as i say they've got so many good players but i think she is the real linchpin for the side so maybe they actually go from being up there as one of the favorites to maybe slightly lower now that obviously her injury has been confirmed do you accept that, Michael? Do you think they've got the strength and depth to, to cover Alexia's injury? No, I'm not sure they have, actually. I mean, for all the chat about them being really cohesive based upon Barcelona, I think, I mean, she is a bit of an individualist. She understands the system, but she she just does brilliant things that are completely outside the system and, and based upon individual talent. And, I mean, our personal view is that um, Aitana Bonmati is nearly as good as that. I mean a different kind of player plays deep is nearly as good as that, but is not the same kind of player is not going to provide just the moments of magic she's about controlling the game really um, so yeah it is a big blow and I've seen I mean I think Mark was was touching on it there but I've seen a couple of kind of data models that basically say yeah Spain were the favourites with Pateas and are now not the favourites which is yeah obviously quite a dramatic shift it's interesting to, to hear you say that about Bon Matti. Uh, it's difficult to avoid comparisons between Barcelona Femeni of now and the Barcelona side that uh, was potentially the best club side of all time in the men's game under Guardiola. I did see a quote on the Athletic site describing Alexia as 
some sort of Busquets and Iniesta hybrid, which I was struggling to get my head around just how good that player would be. From what you've said, it feels like in this instance, Bon Marti might be more of, of the buzzy of the Busquets. Uh, and Alexia, well, Mark talked about scanning. That made me think of Xavi Hernandez. Maybe she's a, a Xavi Iniesta hybrid. Busquets is in here. I can't, I'm not having Busquets. I don't think you can be Busquets <laughs> slash Iniesta without being a bit of Xavi. I can't really see that. I think basically Bonmati is more like Xavi and uh, an elective Viteris is more like Iniesta, maybe with a bit of Messi because she does play higher up and, and score goals. Um, yeah, <laughs> to be frank, score goals. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, without Jenny Hermoso as well, who I think came second in the Ballon d'Or last year. So without the top two. Uh, in that ranking I mean it shows what talent they've got but it shows what talent they can't count on here but yeah I mean I'm always probably make comparisons with the men's game too much but there is such similarity with the kind of Barca Spain overlap from a decade ago in the men's game even down to the coach I mean Jorge Vilda has got a reputation of being maybe a bit of a Del Bosque figure not the keenest tactician puts the players together and they kind of don't play as well as they do for Barcelona so yeah, it'd be interesting to see Spain. I mean, they're really exciting in a kind of wider context, but you just wonder whether this Euros is going to be the tournament for them. I mean, it's only a year until the next World Cup. It might be that with Puteas back, um, you know, maybe more experience for a couple of the players, they'll they'll challenge at the World Cup more than they do at this Euros. I mean, it's like a, you know, like we're saying, it's a tough group. There's no guarantee they'll get out of the group. Well, they've got Germany with them, eight-time champions, but. Feels like a long way away, that last one. Out in the quarters, the last two tournaments. Uh, I did see them described on site by Rafa Honigstein as very much on the comeback trail this month. Yeah, so they were eliminated by Denmark in the last Euros. Obviously, Denmark went on to the final. That was a big surprise. And I remember in commentary at full time, the commentator said something along the lines of, and that ends Germany's 24-year reign as European champions. Which was, I mean, just incredible to get your head around. Um, I think they're probably the biggest question mark of the major sides for me. They've, I mean, especially defensively, they don't really seem to have the individuals. Their record in that respect isn't particularly convincing. They've got a strong midfield. Dabritz is probably their best player. Oberdorf's had a good season, was excellent in the Champions League. And they've got a couple of, again, I mean, I, I thought Wolfsburg, I saw them in the group stage against Chelsea a couple of times, was really impressed by them. Huth and, and Vasmuth out wide, very quick, very exciting going forward. But they just don't really seem to have the cohesion that you would expect of of quite a talented squad. So again, the fact that it's a hard group is is why I'm saying this, of course. But they're maybe the only side, I, I think, who could win the tournament or go out in the group stage, along with Spain, just because the group is difficult and there are question marks in in, in the starting eleven. really. I must admit, when you talk about teams potentially lacking cohesion compared to others in the tournament. That does always worry me when we're talking about tournament football, where, frankly, if you don't win your first two games, you might be out by the end of the first week. Uh, is that, you know, is that a huge, is that a big red flag for you in general when it comes to tournament football? You know, you've got great individuals, but lacking cohesion. Would you almost rather it the other way around? I mean, like you said, it's such a small sample size, isn't it? I mean, it's you lose your first two games and go out. I always think it's quite fun to think about if the Premier League was contested on similar lines. You know, Arsenal lost the first three games of the season, right? That's it. You're going home. You've got no chance to recover. So, yeah, funny things can happen in tournaments. And I think this is the group where maybe something funny could happen. Because 
if we consider the teams that we've spoken about so far, two for each group basically as the eight strongest. We'll get on to, to Group C and D in a second. But our Denmark, the third team to discuss in this group, the most interesting of the, well, shall we call them dark horses? Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, mentioned harder earlier. I, I think she's brilliant, especially at international level. If I, I mean, with Puteas out, if I could build a team and start with one player, I'd probably go for her. I think she just is so intelligent with her movement, brilliant vision, scores goals, really hardworking, a great captain as well as being the star player. Um, I don't think they've got too many other great players, but I, I do think there's a good understanding, there's a good team spirit, and there is a recognition that Harder is the player who can do wonderful things, and if you get the ball to her, see what can happen. <laughs> well, do remember that the best and the definitely the most in-depth coverage of this tournament can be found on the Athletic site. So much good stuff going on there uh, at the moment. This is the Athletic Football Tactics podcast, and stay with us because in the final part, you're going to hear about the best all-round team in the competition. And it ain't Spain... And unfortunately, it ain't England either. Two fascinating groups to finish us off. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, so Group C, just in terms of, of the, the bookmakers' odds to win the group here, this appears to be the toughest duo to split, uh, Michael. And in a tournament like this, coming first versus coming second can obviously have big benefits uh, in the knockout stages. So uh, we're talking about Sweden and we're talking about uh, Holland here. Let's start with the Swedes. Everything I've read about them leading up to this tournament suggests they are a serious contender. Yeah, I mean, maybe we've got the best starting eleven in the tournament. There's probably no real superstar. Um, but maybe that's a good thing. I mean, several seriously good players, lots of attacking options going forward. Um, there is a suggestion they could be without Stina Black-Stenius for the Open against Holland. Uh, she's doubtful. And that would be a big blow because that would be the game to win in terms of topping the group. But yeah, they have got stre uh, great strength and depth. I don't think there's an obvious weakness anywhere in the team. Um, a lot of the players are quite familiar at big European clubs, but I think there's, there's probably strength and depth beyond that. I mean, um, suggestion that a young player called Johanna Reiting Kanerid, who I must admit I've never seen play because she plays in the Swedish league for, for Hecken, but she's forced her way into the side. And it's worth pointing out the Swedish league is still pretty good in European terms. I mean, go back five, ten years and it was the strongest in Europe, but it's still up there. Um so, yeah, I mean, I, I can't really see any weaknesses, uh, weaknesses in the Swedish side. The one question mark being that they have repeatedly got to the semi-finals and indeed the final last year in the Olympics and just never quite get over the line. Um, and I, 
I'm always reluctant to just say this is a psychological thing, but I think the more that does happen, the more it does play on the mind, and it has happened a lot. Um, but yeah, over- ah, small small sample size, low scoring sport, yeah, low margins. I, I'm not having it. Yeah, I, I I do tend to agree with you on that portion. <laughs> but yeah, they. I mean, I think I'd probably have them as as the favourite Sweden. I think they're they're just got the gr- the best probably the best 15 16 players i'd say and i think that's what you need to win a tournament i think at international level as well obviously the fine margins count for for so much as we've sort of already established and i thought it was interesting what jesse parker humphrey said in in the preview she's done a brilliant preview on on site of each of the groups which i'd implore people to to read some fantastic insight in there and she made a good point that six members of the sweden squad play in england as well so I think, so she put that only England and Northern Ireland have more English-based players in their squad. So is there an element of maybe home comfort? So again, those small margins where, especially in those smaller stadiums, just being familiar with your surroundings just makes it feel a little bit more like you are, or it's less familiar, it's, sorry, let me say that again. It's less unfamiliar, shall we say. So at least you can then just sort of hit the ground running when you get on the pitch. And of course, the atmosphere is going to likely be very different, but as I say, those small margins maybe count for a lot. So as well as them being a, a really strong team themselves, it just maybe accelerates them a little bit more into to maybe more of the favourites. So Holland are in this group as well. And a nice quirk is that they have an English coach, Mark Parsons, where England have a Dutch coach in Serena Wiegman. Uh, they also have, Michael, some serious fa- firepower, uh, but excitingly for me as a neutral were described on the site preview as incredibly leaky so it sounds like they could be ones to watch for entertainment I also note that in terms of the odds to win the tournament they're actually just just a little bit shorter odds than Sweden so favoured by the bookmakers if not perhaps by yourself yeah maybe because their holders and have have got the got the know-how of doing it I mean last time out Miedemar and Lika Martins were the the stars I think that's probably still True this time around um, in midfield, both Danielle van der Donk and Giroud, I think, have had good seasons, actually, both since leaving Arsenal. They seem to have improved. Um, and yeah, the defending, I think they... When I've seen them, they almost tried to defend in a very ambitious, very positive way and kind of get caught out because of that. I think individually they're okay. I like Dominic Janssen a lot. I think she's a very good player. But yeah, I, I do think they will concede goals. Um, there's a couple of teams like that in this tournament Germany and Norway as well like really good going forward but defensively you just wonder about them um, but I expect they will get through the group I think this is maybe the I suppose with England Norway as well there's a couple of groups where you'd be surprised if the top two didn't get through to be honest I think it is an interesting point of just how many teams yeah, are quite, quite top heavy um, which kind of brings me to the point that I just want to talk about Viv Miedema I just think She's great. I know that it's quite an obvious one to say, but I just think um, she's such a fantastic player. All-time Dutch top scorer um, and all-time WSL top scorer as well. And she's still only 25 years old and is just a fantastic player. 14 goals in the WSL last season. Only Sam Kerr for Chelsea obviously scored more goals with with 20. And it, it wasn't even Miedema's most prolific season of her career. So 14 last season, but 18 the season before, 16 the season before that, 22 the season before that. So actually, by all accounts, not her most prolific season, but still such a a great player. She's got such a winning mentality as well. And 
I think you'd put her in with a strong chance of, of the golden boot, providing that the Netherlands do obviously progress into those real latter stages, semi-final, final, maybe you'd, you'd put her with a, a strong chance of a golden boot shout. Well, it sounds like Sweden versus Holland, which is on Saturday night, is absolutely must watch in Group C. Uh, to finish off Group D, France, Michael, uh, if they click, if they click, they are the team to beat. True or false? Well, I suppose it is true. But yeah, the if is is quite big. Um, Corinne Diacre has made some interesting selection decisions I mean, maybe we don't need to talk about the players left at home by this stage, but I mean, to leave out Amandine Henri, who I think for me has been the best player at the last two World Cups and was the best player in the Champions League final last month or the month before, actually. Hard to get your head around that one. Yeah, it's a bold one. But this, I mean, it's, it just seems classic France, doesn't it? They, I, I just <laughs> never trust that they're going to keep it together with 23 players living together for a month um, with a kind of authoritarian coach who does seem to just make some crazy decisions at times. So, uh, yeah, on paper, they're great. I mean, Katoto, I think he's probably up there with the best strikers in the tournament. Good shout for the golden boot in, in this group. Um, good players down the flanks as well. But, yeah, I just, I'm just not think, I'm not convinced that things will click well enough for them to, to win the tournament. Yeah, I think on Katoto as well, just to kind of back some some numbers on on that, she's she's had a fantastic season, but she's fantastic every season. She's such a prolific goal scorer. She's averaged more than one goal per game in each of her last five seasons at PSG. She scored 18 goals in 21 games domestically last season, plus four assists as well. So she's averaging 1.3 goals or assists per 90 minutes, which is quite outstanding as well. She scored 10 goals in eight games for France in their World Cup qualifying as well. So you can certainly see why she's being tipped for the Golden Boot and still only 23 years old as well. So she's going to continue to go on to to big things. But um, yeah, definitely her, Miedema, Hedeberg maybe. I'm trying to think of who else would be, maybe be in for a, a shout for the Golden Boot, but she's certainly right up there. Uh, they've also got Italy to play uh, this squad is made up of a strong core of veteran players was quite a comforting thing to read about Italy heading into a, a major tournament it uh, makes me think Michael uh, and I must say this is not based on a huge amount of knowledge of my own that they'll probably be quite tough to beat quite tough to break down quite Italian yeah there's a few familiar things I mean they've got a Juventus spine they've got a deep line very good deep line playmaker in Manuela Giuliano a couple of good strikers um, and when I, I think I've only seen one game they played this year, but they played really hard at the pitch defensively, um, in quite a perilous way. So yet again, we're talking about a team who I'm not sure about them defensively, and I, I, I just think teams with good defenses tend to win tournaments. You've got to keep clean sheets, um, and they finished behind Denmark in their qualification group, albeit that qualification is quite a long time ago now <laughs> um, but it does show that they're yeah their, their results haven't necessarily been the most consistent Iceland in this group as well I think that they from what I've read might count as something of a dark horse and realistically Michael in, in a tournament of only 16 teams uh, Iceland stand out in so many ways just for being there considering well lots of things but certainly most starkly their population which is dwarfed by pretty much everyone else in the tournament yeah it could be a dark horse in a way certainly not much darkness in Iceland at this 
time of the year. Um, I can imagine them getting a nil-nil at some point. Um, and they've got a couple of good players. Jons That's Hold on. That's a real backhanded compliment, isn't it? I can imagine them getting a nil-nil at some point. I, well, I, I I mean, if we're talking about Dark Horse, I don't think they're Dark Horse to win the tournament. Can you say Dark Horse to get out the group? I mean, that just sounds even more patronising than saying they'll get a nil-nil somewhere. No, but I think if you pick a Dark Horse and they and they get to the semis in a 16-team tournament, yeah. you can consider yourself having picked a good one. I, I, I agree with that, but I don't think they will get to the semis. <laughs> I mean, they're, they're not... They're not bad. Jons Dottier's got a good reputation. I think probably played down the right. Gunnar's Dottier uh, was the best player in the Champions League final two years ago. Um, and good to see at the tournament because she had a baby relatively recently. I think earlier this year. So I didn't think she was going to play, but she is playing. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's an amazing story. They've, they've qualified fairly consistently for this tournament, which considering the population, um, again, we've said this about the men's side a couple of times over the last uh, six years. It is remarkable that they are at this tournament. Um, and if they do get a result at any point, then they'll have done really well. What I find crazy, and this came from an article that you wrote and released over the last few days, is that if you are a football obsessive and you cover it over time, it both helps you massively with things like geography and flags and capital cities. But also it can slightly warp your perception of countries based on things like population. So Iceland, certainly with their fantastic generation that did so well at Euro 2016 in the men's game, you see them constantly represented at major tournaments in the men's and women's games. And it just, it, it, can, it can slightly warp how small their population is. And the line in your piece that made this stand out most for me was in comparison to Luxembourg, whose population is just under double the population of Iceland. But if you're a football fan like me who who doesn't know a lot about geographic, historical politics of Europe, um, you'd think that Iceland was a, a much larger country. Yeah, I, I think that's a fair point. And um, yeah, that article was quite fun. I kind of related the success of women's football teams in relation to their population to uh, the World Economic Forum's gender equality rankings and the main conclusion is that the Nordic sides are basically the uh, the five best performing sides in the women's Euros in comparison to their population and four of the five are the top five in the worldwide gender equality rankings with New Zealand replacing Denmark in there which and I, I do think I don't think that's a coincidence. I think there is a link. I think there's just historically been more opportunities for women in those countries, and I think I'm right in saying four of the five of them currently have a fi- uh, female prime minister, and the other one did until about six months ago. Um, so I, I do think there is a, a link there, and there's a link at the other end of the scale with with the lesser performing nations as well. Mm, it's certainly worth a read on the athletic site brilliant piece from michael do nations with greater gender equality have better women's football teams that's the title of the article if you'd like to search for it and that's just one of of many at the moment on the athletic site um, get excited about the women's european championships happening over the next three weeks or so we will be here uh, adding our own twist on events but there's so many other bits of content on site so many 
podcasts on The Athletic, or rather in The Athletic's stable, that will keep you more than up to date. The Euros has begun and The Athletic is with England's Lionesses every step of the way with our daily women's football podcast. Join Lindsay Hooper, Kate Borsay and a host of former England stars including Kelly Smith and Rachel Yankee for expert coverage of the tournament's biggest stories up and down the country from Old Trafford to Wembley, the daily women's football podcast. Subscribe now and you may as well make sure that you're subscribed to this podcast feed as well because our 22-23 season starts here. Over the next few weeks, we'll be talking women's Euros, but as July progresses, as August looms, we'll be switching our attention as well to a 22-23 season in the men's game. And we can't wait to do that with you. So thanks for joining us. We'll chat again very soon. The Athletic.